0: Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: That's right.
1: That's right.
0: Welcome to episode 82.
1: 82? The second one. That's right. It's the the second second of of the 80s.
0: Yes, that's right. It's
1: the sequel to eighty. Eighty-two.
0: It's actually, isn't it, the trilogy to eighty. It is
1: technically the third of the eighties. Because but... would
0: eighty-one been the the first?
1: Yeah, I guess so. But it doesn't. It's not as funny. All right, Seth. Yes. So the question of the day is: How are you? What have you been playing?
0: Well, recently I went on a journey. I wanted to play a new game. Ooh. and Well, not necessarily a new game, a new game to me in the moment. And I kind of was in the mood to play like a beat 'em up game. So follow me on this logic. I, I wanted to play a beat-em-up game. Okay. So I was like, ah, I want to play a beat-em-up game because I want to kind of sit back with my controller and just play a game like that. Okay maybe i'll play some streets of rage 4 good game and then i got to streets of rage 4 on the store and i saw that they were developed by dot and i was like i've seen that name before what else have they done and i looked up into their catalog and i saw that they're the same people who are doing beyond pharaoh the new pharaoh remaster that's coming out that i think i put in one of my byway passes in the past yeah. i realized that they also developed some other games as well including the game that i've been recently playing And that's Metal Slug. Now, Metal Slug is not a beat-em-up game, but it is a kind of side-scrolling type game. If you're unfamiliar with Metal Slug, it was originally done by the SNK uh, Corporation and released in arcades. Uh, It was on the Neo Geo which SNK did. And it's really a classic 2D running gun action shooting game. You play as this guy. This is not a Metal Slug episode, so I'm not going to go into specifics about who the guy is. But you play as like this dude and you have a gun and you shoot things as you move right. You cannot move left. You can only move right. <laughs> left, in fact, gets locked so you can't move backwards. You're also timed every mission. You have like, uh, I think like s- a minute or so to get through every mission and as you go through the mission and as you kill people you get power-ups and that drop so maybe you get like a heavy rifle a shotgun a flamethrower a missile launcher however if you get shot you immediately die and you do respawn but you respawn with no none of your weapons so if you had a rocket launcher and you die you lose your rocket launcher you also can only have one weapon at a time so if you have a pistol and then you get a rocket launcher you go to the rocket launcher and you use that rocket launcher until you run out of ammo. So if you one hit, you die. And then if you die like three times, you get a game over. Now, I'm just picturing this in the arcade because this first came out in arcades. You one hit kills in like a running gun game. So there's a lot of things being shot at you. And if you get hit once, you're dead. So it is like a quarter eater like i i just can imagine just dumping in quarter after quarter after quarter playing this game fortunately i'm playing it on steam so i just push start and i have infinite reloads and i think i'm playing the game on an easier difficulty and i'm five out of six missions so once i beat this so once i beat the sixth mission i'll go on playing metal slug 2 and maybe i'll play some metal slug x i think i'll play metal slug x i think because i think that's the remastered version of two nice yeah it's fun i like the there's tank portions where you get into your you get into a a tank and you could drive the tank around the gun's kind of interesting because the gun swivel is on the same as your directional pad so as you move forward your gun may swivel backwards so you have to like play around with like your d-pad to make sure that your gun swivel is working okay and then the art style is really fun it's uh kind of like a cartoony um Almost, re- it reminds me of like a cartoony 1970s war art kind of thing. And okay, and it's a fun game. I've I've been enjoying it, and uh, it is also very tough. So yeah, Metal Slug. It's a nice classic, classic sh- running gun shooter.
1: It's a solid game. Uh, I've had I've always had a good time playing it.
0: It's very fluid like the movements and stuff like that it's very fluid it doesn't feel clunky at all so it originally came out in like 1996 Mm so it's still an era where things some stuff would move slow
1: yeah we probably are due to do an episode either on metal slug or smk especially their neo geo console
0: yeah i definitely could i think i actually the metal slug series and also the neo geo probably deserve episodes in their own rights so and we'll get there i'm sure one day in the future so look forward to a metal slug and a neo geo episode now, Zach, I hear you've also played a game that came out in 1996. I was
1: also playing a game that came out in 1996. That is correct. Though the version I was playing is a modern port of the game developed by our friends over at Night Dive Studios. Their version came out in 2014, but I was playing Strife, specifically Strife Veterans Edition, that was originally released as Strife Quest for the Sigil in 1996. So Strife is a first-person role-playing game created in the id tech one engine which is also known as the doom engine by a company called rogue entertainment um strife is a pretty cool game it's definitely for the time it was released and the engine it was built in very unique because first person shooters at the time were really not about having conversations with people or, or any form of like dialogue it was really just run and gun and blow stuff up and cause chaos so this is a game built in the same engine as doom which is this cathartic visceral experience where you actually have objectives like you talk to a person who tells you to go do something and you can go over and do it in a in a kind of open world setting where whenever you go into a section that needs to generate a new map there's a loading screen and it does generate a new map but um, most of the map is interconnected so that you're kind of in a hub of sorts which is your kind of open world and as you go into new areas it opens up into this kind of bigger world that you explore which I think is really cool especially for what the engine was capable of at the time. Now Strife is also neat because it has voice acting. The The voice actors I looked them up it didn't look like they have done anything else but I will say that the one of the voices sounds like the guy who played sam and sam and max but it's not i looked i confirmed but he kind of talks like this he talks like a like he's an old-timey private eye and he's a character called rowan who you meet at the very beginning of the game after you murder two guards who have you in jail you escape jail you shiv two guards you walk into a room where this guy is standing there and he's like hey you want to go kill a man for me and you're like yeah i do so you go do that and he gives you money <laughs> it's a very good first mission he, he literally doesn't like react to you murdering two guards who are standing outside of his shop and he's just like hey you you look like you're free you want to go murder this guy I don't like <laughs> oh, he, knows, <laughs> and he
0: knows you got experience
1: yeah so you go do that and then you join like a resistance force who is kind of rebelling against this uh, uh technocratic leader of sorts it's that the future yeah it's kind of like a fantasy future so like the weapon you yeah. get is a crossbow but it shoots like laser bolts. Um and, and then like all of the guards kind of look like knights but they have like machine guns.
0: Yeah, I was I was looking at some pictures. It looked like some people were wearing like dive gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And like there's like peasant characters who you can just kinda like chat with and they, they wear like tunics, kinda look like like Link, but they're it's the future. So fun. It's a, it's a fun game. It's a lot more complex than, again, other id tech one games at the time, but uh, certainly worth checking out. And uh, as mentioned, Night Dive Studios did do a pretty good recreation of the game in their own whatever engine they use uh, to make the game run as smooth as possible. And
0: look at that. The classic gaming brothers playing games from the classic 1996s.
1: That's right. So today's
0: episode, I think, is going to be a, uh, an interesting one as well. So I actually wanted to talk about some pop culture recently ish there was a movie that was released called ready player One, oh. which was based on a movie a book called ready player one by ernest klein who also i believe consulted on the movie and then ernest wrote a book called ready player two
1: yes which was the sequel
0: I, i've not read ready player two have you read ready player two
1: I have not. I have watched a review of it, and apparently it's not very good.
0: Ah, perfect. I'll have to pick it up because I, <laughs> I, I'm i pretty much a fan of utter trash, which is why I read Dan Brown. But <laughs> <laughs> so in that in the movie Ready Player One and in the book Ready Player One, it's all about this guy, whatever his name is, is he's established a, a contest because he's dying or he's bequeathing his fortune because he's this guy who invented VR and He is bequeathing his company and all this money to whoever can find Easter eggs in the game that he developed. His his name's like Montague or something like that. Something silly like that.
1: His name is Halliday.
0: James Halliday. Halliday. Yeah, that's like Montague. (laughs) Yeah. And this contest involves players finding Easter eggs in his games. Now, Ready Player One did not come from a vacuum. Ernst Klein probably was heavily influenced by what we're about to discuss. Because Ready Player One, in my opinion, is really based at least on the real life Sword Quest and the associated Sword Quest content. Now, the Sword Quest games really started coming out in the, the 1980s, which were great for video games, at least the... Beginning, like the 1980s, the end of the 1970s, like 1979, 1980, great years for video gaming. Atari, in 1980, Atari was the top of their game. By 1981, the Atari 2600 was selling incredibly well. With... An estimated 35.8 million units sold. And in 1982, another 28.9 million units sold. Atari's titles like Asteroids made up of 38% of the market share of games in 1980. Atari was the premier video game company and they even had like a club there was an atari like membership club it was everywhere so atari decided why don't we make some ridiculous marketing ploy and be able to sell four games with it and in order to do that they were like what's make a scavenger hunt which came from another popular title by atari called adventure
1: so adventure became popular for a variety of reasons one is it's just a genuinely fun game it's one of the earliest kind of what you would say adventure games but in terms of graphical adventure games so in, in adventure you play as a square and you explore a maze to find a key and you bring the key to a castle and you get a chalice from the castle. Pretty simple. And you also have to escape like a dragon who looks like a duck, and the dragon will eat you. Besides being just a genuinely fun game, uh, Adventure became popular for another reason, which is because it was one of the first documented examples of an Easter egg being hidden in a video game. Adventure's Easter egg was placed by the programmer of the game, who was named Warren Robinette. Now, Warren put his name in the game due to a policy that Atari had of not including programmers names on the box, which was a policy that had been in place since 1976 when Warner Communications purchased Atari. And this policy was so unpopular that not only were people like Warren hiding their names in games, but also a bunch of programmers just out and quit Atari and created Activision. So that's what happens when you tick off a bunch of programmers. They start a company that's still churning out titles to this day. So getting
0: your name on a box, especially for a programmer, was a way, it was adding to your resume. Yeah. Like if you were a lead programmer on a game and you had your name on a box, you could bring that box to a job interview and you can say, oh, did you play this game? That's me.
1: Yeah. And at this time, games were mostly programmed by one two people at the most uh so it's a little different nowadays but In comparison, it would be like if you watched a movie and there was just no credits at the end. (laughs) Anyway, the discovery of the Easter egg, which um, to find the Easter egg, it's a little bit of an arduous process. You have to play on a certain difficulty and you have to go into certain rooms and do certain actions. But after you eventually complete the Easter egg, um, the name will appear on the screen as kind of just text going down the center of the screen. With the discovery of the Easter egg, though, people began sharing how to find it with their friends and it became kind of this challenge of sorts see how fast you can get the easter egg uh, to appear on the screen and atari liked this i mean i'm sure they weren't a big fan of the fact that this guy was mad at them but they definitely liked the idea of people talking about their game in a different context and buying their game for that reason so atari had this idea to make an entire game series based on easter eggs atari wanted to do this correctly though they didn't want just kind of a silly like oh you know you find something cool you write in you get a t-shirt or something they wanted real cash and a comic book tie-in that was written by jerry conway and roy thomas and illustrated by george perez Of DC Comics they were going all out and they
0: were able to bring in the DC Comics because Warner Communications is the same company that's also known as Warner Media today and Warner Communications at that time owned DC Comics as well as Atari so making a DC comic probably a pretty easy lift for (laughs) Warner Communications by just saying do it. (laughs)
1: I think it was very easy for Warner to be like, oh. We can definitely churn out a comic book.
0: Please make a comic book about this premise. We have an entire staff of writers to do it associated with the game, which we have an entire staff of video game. Warner Communications was, even even at this time in the 1980s, they were really primed to really tackle this kind of market head on. Now, before we get into the actual contest itself, we'll talk about the games. They're fairly straightforward games. The games were all developed by one person Todd Fry. The first game, Earthworld, was released in 1982. And in Earthworld, you explore a maze and enter various rooms to collect items. As you explore each room, you discover various hidden clues which would relate to the overall contest, which is in real life. And one way to reveal clues was putting the right combination of items in a certain room. Fireworld, the follow up to Earthworld, was released in 1983 and played somewhat similarly but features different mini games. So, one of the mini games actually kind of looks like an Activision game called Kaboom, where you move an object back and forth as things fall from the top of the screen. Uh, another mini game in Fire World had you moving a stick back and forth and smacking and hitting what looked like birds. Uh, once again, you specifically had to play these games to find the clues for the real world contest. Water World, which came out in 1984, featured a bit more unique mini games. Uh, there is a swimming mini game where you dodge sharks because it's water world. There is another, wor- another one where you jump from object to object, kind of like Frogger, and another uh, game that has you avoiding squids. Once again, is it's Waterworld. You collect, throughout the game, you collect objects and are looking for clues that tie back to the ultimate contest. Finally, there was Airworld, and that would round out the Sword Quest collection. However, Airworld would not be released.
1: Now, each game was themed on the idea of the elements, with each game map being themed after various forms of spirituality. So, at least in terms of the elements, I mean you have Earth, fire water and what would have been air but no heart (laughs) but no heart no planet uh, captain planet uh, he's a hero this should have been
0: captain planet quest and you don't you should have won a like vat of toxic sludge or something yeah
1: so <laughs> the the games as mentioned all of their maps uh took from various kind of elements of spirituality i would say earth world had a western zodiac theme fire world was themed after the kabbalah tree of life water world after chakras an air world was intended to be modeled after the Yi Xing, which is a Chinese philosophy. And there was also a plot to the games. So specifically, the plot follows these twins named Terra and Tor. Their parents had been killed by the guards of the evil King Tyrannus, and an, a wizard... Tells the twins that they are destined to kill Tyrannus. As they now know their fate, and also apparently Tyrannus knows that these twins are going to murder him, they end up being raised by thieves and are kind of raised into hiding so that Tyrannus' people can't find them. Throughout the comics, they go on various adventures and are transported to the different worlds Earth world, Fire world, etc. And and as I just kind of alluded to, this story is told through the DC comics, so you wouldn't really be able to pull this from the game as you were playing, because Atari games didn't really have that type of storytelling mechanic, but uh, if you had the comic book with you, um, which was heavily advised, then uh, you would be able to follow along the story of Tara and Tor.
0: And you could use your imagination, right? You could. I mean, you just
1: wouldn't win prizes if you used your imagination.
0: <laughs> I meant when you're playing the game, trying to go along with the story, using the comic. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You kind of can use your imagination. Maybe if you played these uh, world games back in the day, let us know. Maybe the games played, you know, a little better than if you went back to play them today. Though so we'll we'll get into what the people at the like reviewers thought at the time of this game at the end of the episode
1: so now let's get into the contest itself i I would say this is yeah i think this is the best part about the sword quest games it's kind of like how we did breakout where we just kind of briefly covered the gameplay and the history of the breakout was much more interesting that's sword quest the games are eh. it's the contest that's the interesting part atari really wanted people to get hooked into buying these sword quest games and they launched a contest in october of 1982 along with the launch the first game earthworld the sword quest cycle was a real life treasure hunt and for its time what you could kind of call an alternate reality game or an arg though in probably the most bare minimum of that terminology each sword quest game had the dc comic packed along with the game to not only go over the story but also to allow you to search for the clues using the packed in comic and playing through the game the players would attempt to find hidden numbers throughout the game. They would then use those numbers to find hidden words on the corresponding comic page. So for example, uh, and this is just a random number, I don't think this was an actual clue, but maybe you saw the, number, uh, the numbers 12 and 6 flash on the screen. So you would go to the 12th page of the comic and look at the sixth panel really closely, and you would see a hidden word. So you would list out the hidden words that you found, and usually there was a hint somewhere in the comic on how to actually read these words, because there was usually 10 hidden words in the comic, but only four were part of the actual contest. So the comic would often have a hidden clue on how to interpret the words that you're finding. For example, in Earthworld, there was a hint in the opening page where there was a description of the story where the words prime and numbered were discolored from the rest of the text, which tells you to use the prime numbers of the list of words. You would get this list of words, you would use the prime numbers, and then you would determine a phrase that was connected to this list of words that you would then send off to Atari and they would determine to see if you qualified. Once you qualify, you would be flown out to Atari, uh, which was located in Sunnyvale, California, to compete against the other qualifiers in a uniquely programmed version of the game that you qualified for. The fastest time completing the game would be awarded the grand prize for that game and qualify for the ultimate prize. In theory, the contest would have had a grand prize winner from each game and then a fifth and final challenge against the prize winners once the games were all released and all the game's prizes were claimed.
0: It's, it sounds great. And you're probably thinking to yourself already, what could a video game company offer? You know, there's a lot of things that a video game company could offer. Maybe you might may win a uh, vacation or a t-shirt or maybe more copies of their video game or maybe an Atari system. These are all like reasonable things that you could win. No, no, not for this, not for Sword Quest. Sword Quest required only the best and only the most on-brand products. Now, I actually went through back to 1983 and found an issue of Atari Age. Which was uh, the magazine that was would associate with what was Atari doing for their products that they were releasing. And discovered the contest promotion from that issue. And the contest had the prizes that you could win from the Sword Quest Challenge. The oh, yeah. Sorquest, the cycle, the cycle, I guess it was called. Now, these were some of the most gaudiest things that I've ever seen. So the winner of Earthworld was would get the Talisman of Penultimate Truth, which was a real talisman that was solid 18 karat gold studded with 12 diamonds, 12 other precious stones, including the birthstones of like, I think even the birthstones of like the winner could be in there. Uh, and there was like a sword that was set into the talisman. The winner of Fire World would get the Chalice of Light, which was a goblet that was made out of platinum and gold and set with multiple rubies, sapphires, diamonds, and pearls. So these, 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 these are the prizes, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a actual talisman, an actual goblet, the winner of the Water World would get the crown of life, which was a golden crown with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, green tourmalines and aquamarines all set around it if you're listening and wondering what a a tourmaline is it is just a gem these would have been green because they were green tourmalines (laughs) and aquamarines are like an like an aqua colored precious stone so tourmalines and aquamarines are more less gems more like precious stones
1: yeah they're pretty inexpensive
0: finally the winner of air world would get the philosopher's stone which was encased in 18 an 18 karat gold box studded with emeralds rubies diamonds and citrines and citrines are uh, like an amber color quartz now these are pretty ridiculous prizes in my opinion yeah they and they are very very gaudy like i have gone to england and i have seen the crown jewels Of the Queen of England. Yeah. And looking at this article, these would go toe to toe. Maybe a minor lord or like a a nobility of England would wear these or have these items. They are medieval gaudiness. They're nuts. Now, there's one more prize. When the sword quest cycle was over, the winner of the fifth and final prize would get a sword. It's a sword quest. It would be appropriate. Uh, The sword would have an 18 karat gold hilt. In the magazine, they said handle. They're just like, yeah, an 18 karat gold, but it would be the hilt. With a silver blade, and that hilt would be filled with diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphires. Now, according to Atari, the cost of each of the four game prizes, the talisman, the chalice, the crown, and the stone, uh, the box, I guess. I don't know what the stone actually, I think it might have been just a sealed box.
1: I was just going to say, like, did they have the actual philosopher's stone?
0: Yes, yes, they did. And they put it in a gold box. Atari
1: was just like, hey, we found the philosopher's stone. Want to give it to some kid? (laughs) Yeah. That kid was Harry Potter. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) He won the
0: Atari challenge. According to Atari, the cost of each of these items was $25,000, except for the sword, which was $50,000. Now, I went back to 1982. If you had $25,000, that would equate to approximately $70,000 in today's money. And if you had $50,000, that would equate to $140,000 in today. Days money yeah. so yeah I I would also attempt to win these prizes because it was based on skill not luck. Now we'll uh, discuss exactly what happened to these prizes. But Zach's going to uh, tell us what the heck happened to the
1: contest. Yeah. So well, first off, how did you win? Well, there the, like I mentioned, you found the phrases and the phrases to win these games have since been found, and I'm going to tell you we the phrases. We oh we know them. Get, get a pen and pencil down, because I'm going to give you the cheat codes to get a crap ton of money, apparently, back in the 1980s. Not for real. I, I cannot honestly promise you that this will give you money well, if you, legally. If you, <laughs> if you get a time machine. If you get a time machine you can go get some money. <laughs> that's the, that that's what you're going to do.
0: It's the quest of the next back to the future. You go back with the winning after listening to a classic gaming brother podcast, you go back, you qualify, and then you win earth world.
1: Now the phrases to get you qualified for the contest were for earth world. The phrase was quest in tower talisman found for fire world leads to chalice. Power abounds. For Waterworld, hasten toward Revealed Crown. And for Airworld, it never came out, so we don't know. This contest happened back in the 80s, so someone won, right? So with Earthworld, they had 5,000 entries, and throughout those entries, only eight were correct. For the first Sword Quest contest, it happened in May of 1983. Stephen Bell, who was one of those eight, won, and Stephen Bell, to this day, is the winner.
0: He is the winner of
1: the Talisman. For Fireworld, Atari received a lot more responses than they expected. And they got a lot more of them right. 73 of them were right, in fact. Much more than 8. So, Atari decided they needed to trim down this fat you had. So, in order to trim it down, Atari had the qualifiers write an essay about Fireworld and how much they loved it. Out of those essays, 50 moved forward to the competition that was held in January of 1984. And Michael Rideout won the chalice.
0: I, I really enjoy that uh, they like were like now write an essay about how much you love us.
1: I just like I want to read some of the essays that didn't win. I do where too. it was just like Fireworld sucked. I just want cash.
0: <laughs> I kind of want to read the essays that did. Like I want to read all the essays. I want to read
1: Michael's essay. I hope it was like I hope that's probably in a leather tome somewhere, written on gold leaf paper. That you know each page. Sparkles like an illuminated text of the Bible. And he
0: didn't write an essay to win, he beat the game faster than 50 other people. No, I know, but honestly,
1: if I won, I would have preserved the essay that I won with the best way possible.
0: And put it with your chalice?
1: I would have, yeah, I would have set it next to the chalice so it looks kind of like a, like a prop piece, you know?
0: So, unlike Ready Player One, this contest does not have a uh, feel-good ending. No. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Everything is uh, not going... Right, with Atari. Also, in with the video game industry as a whole. Uh, 1983 brought the video game crash. And a- along with the video game, the overall industry video game crash, the former CEO of Atari, Ray Kasser, became the former CEO because he was involved in insider trading. Hey,
1: that's a crime. Was,
0: <laughs> that is a crime. And was replaced, because of his crime, around the middle of 1983 with a new CEO, James... J. Morgan. Now, James J. Morgan inherits a company making video games during the video game crash. So Atari started taking a closer look at their bottom line and perhaps handing out prizes worth $70 000 to $150,000 of 2021 money. It's probably not the best idea. So Airworld, even though it had work done on it, Uh, was scrapped. The the Airworld project was canceled. Now, Waterworld was already released. And so, Atari got into a weird place where Because they were cancelling Airworld, they were cancelling the Sword Quest project. But Waterworld had not had its contest yet, was in the market, and they were already advertising for the the contest. So the corporate counsel at Atari, the lawyers there, said, yeah, you you need to have a Waterworld contest to continue. So to hedge their bets, they sold Waterworld... But they only made it available if you were a member of the Atari Club. Now, this was done to cut down on contestants. And during this time of all this going on, uh, Atari was actually bought from uh, Warner Communications. Yeah. And it was bought by Jack uh, Tramiel who owned Commodore International, who made things like the Commodore 64. <laughs> yeah. So this this purchase by Commodore International further muddied the Waterworld contest. So because when you're running a like this type of capital expense, from a company perspective, you really need to have buy-in from your leadership in order to give away a lot of money. And with the leadership constantly changing because of all this turnover, the entries that got sent in were were mostly denied. Uh, Many entries were denied, stating they didn't qualify for the Waterworld contest. Secretly though, those with the correct entries were brought to Atari headquarters to compete in the Waterworld contest. But they didn't make a big public scene about it. They just said, yes, you got the answers right. Come on down to Atari headquarters. Why don't we solve this? The crown was given out to someone, allegedly. However, the name was not released to the public. So we don't know. Somebody out there has this gaudy looking crown that stemmed back from their time playing Waterworld back in the 80s. Since there was no Airworld ever to be released, there would be no final contest to win the sword. Thus, Stephen Bell and Michael Rideout were kind of take their ability to win the $50,000 sword was taken away from them. So, in consolation to that, Atari did give them an additional $15,000 and an Atari 7800. Also the 10 finalists of Waterworld were given $2,000 a piece. And that was Atari just kind of washing their hands of the whole issue and saying, okay, the winners have been paid off. We're going to make sure nobody complains for the Waterworld people. And that's it. We're done. We're moving on. We're not going to give out this sword. And we're not giving out this... The Philosopher's Stone. (laughs) So what about these actual... Like these prizes? Like what the heck happened to them well so michael Rideout as of 2017 states has has stated that he still owns the chalice and it's still secured in a safety deposit box somewhere nice and uh, that chalice is probably worth a decent amount of money yeah, because it's got a, especially of gold and prices of gold and platinum and all that. It's intrinsically valuable. Uh, Stephen Bell did drop out of the public eye, however, according to Michael Rideout, uh, Stephen melted the disc part of the towels bid down for the value, which at the time would have probably been about fifteen thousand dollars, but because he kept the various non-gold parts as a keepsake so the sword the precious gems and all of those he kept not he a bad idea down the gold and traded the gold then because I, I guess he didn't want a talisman to hang around with, i would which i yeah
1: yeah sure
0: uh the, the crown is uh it's out there somewhere somewhere there's a crown
1: uh now listeners now listeners if out there you are the person who has the crown. I just want to say, good job. Please take a picture with the crown. I want to see the crown so badly.
0: <laughs> I would, I actually just, I would love to see the, the, the chalice. Obviously, we can't see the talisman anymore. Thanks, Stephen Bell. But <laughs> now, the Philosopher's Stone and the Sword. Where are they? They weren't given away. Some, the uh, the urban legend goes that uh, Tremiel, actually, the CEO or owner of Commodore international might have actually taken the philosopher's stone and the sword and hung them up in his office some there's rumors and photographic evidence of a sword that kind of looks like the sword quest sword hanging in his office at some point in time however to break up the urban legend and just drive a source of truth through the nonsense to get to the answer More than likely what happened was that at the end of the day, the products would not have been Atari's at all, but really Warner Communications, who eventually became Warner Media, because they would have had the capital to purchase them. And what would have probably happened is once the project was scrapped by uh, James Morgan, the prizes that they weren't going to give away would have been turned back over to the Franklin Mint, which was the the company that created those products. Now, the Franklin Mint was sold in 1985 to the American Protective Services, and Matari would have been sold off to Commodore. The projects canceled. The products would have been turned back to the Franklin Mint. The Franklin, well, or well, now the American Protective Services, they're, they would have just been melted. And all of that stuff would have been melted down and um, broken back up, and those pieces would have been put into other things. So perhaps somewhere out there in the world, perhaps even jewelry that you wear or or a significant other wears, there is some base elements in that jewelry that may have originally been the sword of Sword Quest. Now, how, how did everyone feel about these games? Like, what what did the people say? Like, what did the reviewers review of this game? One reviewer at the time a Richard Edwards, who wrote for... Base gamer, a Steve Jackson, the game designer mag magazine trade. It was like a leaflet, I guess, or pamphlet. Uh, he reviewed it and said the only reason to purchase a copy of Sword Quest Earthworld would be to try try and solve the puzzle and win the prize. Gamers who are not interested in spending the time required should probably just pass on this game.
1: And I've played a little bit of Sword Quest because, first of all. Sword Quest Earthworld is not a super uncommon game from my understanding. I think the most uncommon game is Waterworld because the fact it was only released via the Atari Club, you can likely find Fireworld and Earthworld for a reasonable price if you're an Atari collector. Playing those games now, if you don't have the comic books with you, are just kind of surreal because you'll be playing it and just numbers will appear on the screen. You can't do anything with those numbers if you don't have the comic book. So then you just have to like progress to the next set of numbers. It's not mm. really like yeah. it's kind of pointless to play them unless you want to like recreate that experience of and to do that you would need to have either a physical copy of the comic book or the digital copies, which I believe someone probably archived them. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean it's this is one of those games it's this game isn't like adventure. Adventure you can go back and play whenever because the point of adventure is to play the game. Sword Quest was only for the competition, so without the competition, they're just kind of there.
0: (laughs) And even with the competition, if you weren't interested in competing, they weren't worth your time.
1: If anything, they might just be interesting collector's pieces, though if you do manage to find a copy of Waterworld, you're probably going to land on some, at least good money, if you want to flip it, because that's an uncommon game. So
0: I would love to see like what a boxed and copy would be uh, with like a complete packed in with comics just to I would love to, to see a cop like see that. So, yeah, that's going to be our sword, c- sword quest. We made it through the quest of swords. corresponding sword quest contest. Yes. That's a, a unique take on talking about the history of some video games.
1: Yeah. Well, now. I, we don't really have anything like I mean, we have ARGs now, but. There's really, we don't really have many more competitions like this for, for video games. If you know of any classic video games that had some weird, strange competition associated with it, let us know. And maybe we'll cover it in one of our upcoming episodes.
0: Or if they're just, you know, weird, strange things associated with a game, by all means.
1: Let's get on to the byway Pass segment. Be-whooppa. Be-whooppa segment.
0: Uh, yeah, the segment. The I wonder if anyone. Actually, I wonder if anyone who listens refers to it as the Bawapa. You
1: know what we should do is we could get a, we should get a shirt that says, Byway weight Pass, like in quotes, and underneath it, it says, Bawapa.
0: So for Byway weight Pass. So uh, r- recently-ish, there was some E3.
1: Yeah, so it happened not last weekend, but the weekend before, I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah, it happened at least a week ago, perhaps more. <laughs> yeah. Pod time is weird time. But uh, anyway, so E3 happened. So we were informed about things that are coming up. So, uh, this uh, Byway Pass segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about some games that we saw at E3 uh, during the virtual streaming stuff. And the first game that I'm going to talk about, and by first, I mean the only one because Zach's going to talk about his only game. It's not like I have a series of games that I'm going to talk about. I hope not. Is. Starfield. Uh, Starfield is Bethesda's first original role-playing game in 25 years because the other games have been iterations off their Fallout or their Elder Scrolls series. Yeah,
1: it's not even their Fallout. <laughs> It's true. It is
0: not even their Fallout. So anyway, Bethesda has their Fallout games, which is now, I guess, Microsoft's Fallout games, and their Elder Scrolls, which is Bethesda, an original original Bethesda product, which uh, is also now owned by Microsoft because Microsoft owns Bethesda. Starfield is set in space, and Todd Howard is working on this game, as he works on many of the Bethesda games. He says this game will be like Skyrim, but in space. I like that. Now... <laughs> I do, too. I like it, too. Uh, not too much is known about the gameplay besides a teaser that was shown at E3. Uh, it, and the teaser didn't even show any gameplay. But it's confirmed to be set around 300 or so years into our future. And the teaser plays homage to 1969 Space Landing era of NASA with the lead artist Istvan Peely calling Starfield kind of a NASA punk type of future which is kind of groovy i like that i like that type of aesthetic it kind of also so 1969 aesthetic i mean it's a space a 1969 space aesthetic but a 1969 aesthetic is not too far off from fallout's aesthetic yeah because fallout's kind of like 1950s aesthetic and i feel like maybe there could be a little blendy but i i maybe this is like what if fallout was utopia and made it through the space like that'd be kind of cool but anyway i don't think it's going to be connected back since it's the original property and uh yeah so starfield i'm excited about it coming out it's coming out eventually Todd howard probably says that it's going to come out when it comes out so and they've been teasing this for the last long time I think I saw a Starfield teaser at PAX four years ago. But now they're owned by Microsoft, so maybe Microsoft will be like, we, we need to push things out the door. <laughs> yeah.
1: Microsoft's like, this game's going to be released tomorrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because guess what Microsoft doesn't make when Starfield is in production? Money. That's right.
1: <laughs> and you know what Microsoft likes? Money.
0: I am going to buy Starfield. Yeah, I think it's probably pretty much kind of guaranteed. Is it a day one buy for me? Yeah, probably. I'm not kidding myself. It's probably <laughs> like, it's... it's So, I'm not a pre-orderer. No. Like, well, I'm not a dramatic pre-orderer. I think there's two tiers of pre-ordering. There's a dramatic pre-order where you pre-order the game like six, 12 months to a year. Like, you know, whatever. As soon as the pre-order option becomes available, you buy it. If you're excited about a game, more power to you. I'm what's known as a, like week before release date pre-order because if i pre-order a game a week before it comes out or six months before it comes out i still get the pre-order benefits regardless of like how far out i pre-order and if i pre-order a week before it comes out generally the game's done like it's not gonna not be done a week before it's released
1: So the game that I am excited about by waiting or passing on is a game called Anacrusis. Anacrusis? Anacrusis. It is another game that was shown at E3 and is due out actually in fall of 2021. So hopefully soon. And well, not soon, soon, because we're entering the summer, but around the corner. The game is being published and developed by a company called Stray Bombay. And it is a four-player cooperative first-person shooter Set on a starship stranded at the edge of space. I think it looks a lot like Left for Dead, but in space, where instead of zombies, You have weird aliens. I also just really liked the design of the game in terms of aesthetic. It's very retro futurism. So it kind of has a like late 60s, 1970s vibe to it where like the characters are definitely in space with like laser guns and stuff, but they're also wearing like bell bottoms and have like afros. And with like, I think one of the characters has like a peace medallion. It reminds me a lot of like classic Doctor Who where in like the 1960s, In the 70s of doctor who an episode would be set on a space station but everyone would be dressed like they're in the 70s or the 60s they basically assumed that people would look exactly the same as they did when they shot the episodes which I think is fantastic. I love watching classic Doctor Who and seeing some future spaceman in bell bottoms. That is quality content. And that's why I think Anacrustis looks great. I'm excited for it. I, I also just love four-player co-op games. I love playing games with my friends. So um, I'll probably put this game down as a buy as long as I can guarantee that my friends will buy the game as well. If they don't, I will be very sad because I will have no one to play the game with because I don't like playing cooperative games with people I don't know. Anyway, that's Anacrusis, the I, Left for Dead in space.
0: I'll play Left for Dead in space. I figured you would play it. So everybody, that was our show. At the end of our show, we always like to ask or at least talk about how the three different things, we do a lot of things in threes on this show maybe you've noticed that. If you're new to the show, maybe you have not noticed that. But if you listen enough, you will. The three things that we usually like to talk about at the end of the show is how to contact us, how to listen to us, and how to support us. Contacting us is important because we like to talk to people who listen to our show. Because in order to give you a good show, we need to know what you want to hear. And so if you tell us what you want to hear, we will do shows about it. So give us ideas. We love hearing about ideas about different shows. If you want to hear about a specific topic, then just let us know, and uh, we'll be we'll put something together for you. If there's a thing that you want, if you are really excited about Neo Geo and you love Neo Geo and you want to hear us do an episode on Neo Geo, send us an email and say, "Hey, I you know I heard that you guys might do an episode on Neo Geo. Could you? I would like to hear that episode, and we'll we'll do it sooner than later." Zach and I do have content planned out pretty far in advance. Uh, so we, we generally have ideas for episodes, uh, though we're always happy to move stuff around, because an episode you don't know that's planned, is, is it an episode? It's not really an episode, is it? To the listener. So if you get an idea or an episode that you never hear that somebody accidentally saved over... Is it really an episode? No, not anymore. So there's that. So you can so you can contact us. Now how to how do you do it? You send us an email. You can send us an email to ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com You can also send it to Seth at ClassicGamingBrothers.com Zach at ClassicGamingBrothers.com ClassicGamingBrothers at ClassicGamingBrothers.com All those. You can also go to our website, go to the contact form on the website, and you can write up an email, essentially, and you can send it on off. You don't even have to give us a valid email in that contact form you could send it from bot at bot.com and that's how the spammers do it so come on send it on in and we'll uh we'll read everything now while you're at the website you can head on over to the lounge and you can listen to our episodes now you're already like we're not we're not We're not dumb. If you are hearing these words, you are listening to us somehow. So what we like to say is that if you are, depending on how you are listening to us, it may not be the way that you need or may want to listen to us. Maybe you're listening to us on your browser or um, perhaps you're listening to us podbeam and you want to listen to us on Apple or Spotify. Well, we're, all, we're on all those platforms. So just use whatever service that you're most comfortable with and search for Classic Gaming Brothers and we should be there. If we're not, let us know. Finally, how to support us. Well, good news. By the time this episode releases, we should have new stuff in our merch store. We will be, and I'm not telling you to buy them, but we will be rolling out two new shirts in the Blow series. You should check it out. Pretty excited about it. Now, Blow being something bad quality-wise, nothing, anything, that's... Anything more or less. Now, the other way that you can support us is by listening to us. Uh, You can also follow us and like us on all of our social media, our Facebook, Instagram twitch so we are classic gaming brothers on facebook we're classic gaming brothers on instagram we're classic gaming brothers on twitch and we are cg brothers pod on twitter and you can follow all those ring all the bells if you could also if you really want to support us give us a review on itunes and that that helps out reviews on whatever podcast agency that you listen to helps uh, iTunes specifically, because iTunes is a, a big part of the the listing market. So just head on over, give us a review, and we'd appreciate it. And that should be everything. Zach, am I missing anything?
1: Oh, yeah. Don't play games like my brother.
0: And don't play games like my brother.
1: I've been Zach. I've been Seth. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: That's right. That's right that That's was off
1: that was off i can fix it in post like how i have to fix you in, can fix it uh, i have to fix a couple of things anyway
0: you have to fix a couple of things opposed post. no everything was perfect about that episode it was a great good episode it was